1: Welcome to episode 282 with my guest, Michael Alexander. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, The website for this show is MentalPod.com. Go there, check it out. Also, MentalPod is the Twitter handle that you can follow me at. Um, But go check out the website. You can fill out surveys. Maybe we'll read your survey on the air. It helps me get to know you guys and what's going on uh, in your lives and how you deal and how you cope and shit you've been through. Uh, you can also read blogs and guest blogs at the website. You can sh- support the show financially. You can uh, browse the forum or join the forum and connect to other people. Uh, all kinds of all kinds of things. Um, all right. And if you're going to uh, buy something at Amazon, enter through our uh, search portal. And I got a um, a little tip from uh, Mary Alice, who writes um, that uh, I made a bookmark a bookmark. To your landing page on Amazon today. And uh, what you do is go to the Support the Show page on my website. Click on the, you'll see the Amazon uh, little box or logo. Click on that, and then that takes you to our landing page at the Amazon site and just book that. Just bookmark that. And then uh, it's there. If you ever want to buy something on Amazon, you don't have to go to my bullshit site, see my fucking ugly face, and deal with that pile of horse fuck. Wow, I think I might have I think I might overreacted. No, actually now that I think about it, that was a perfect that was a perfect amount of reaction. I actually think I underreacted. I think I should have been harder on myself, and that's not the mean DJ voice in my head. That's that's reality. Um on a more serious note, um I feel compelled Mostly because uh, I feel like there's an expectation for me to say something about the mass shooting that happened in Orlando um, a couple of days ago. And, you know, the only thing that I can think to say is people who have been denying LGBTQ people rights and shaming them, and disowning them for being who they are. Um, I'm not really interested in any of your opinions on this whole thing because, you know, while that gunman went in there and caused all of that pain and suffering, you do it too. You just do it by a thousand cuts, you know. You You do it through inaction. You do it through keeping silent when somebody you know maybe is is doing something that's uh homophobic or transphobic um or maybe you're one of those parents that that uh, disowns a kids but I can't imagine any of the people that would listen to this podcast would be the type of person that would disown um a kid for being um you know different but anyway that that's the only thing I can really think to say it's it's, um, I don't want to talk about guns. I don't want to talk about what, you know, why did this guy do it? I tell you what doesn't help, what certainly certainly didn't help this guy's mental state of mind was his father's opinion on, um, homosexuality and, uh, there, that's my that's my two cents. That's my two cents. Um, I want to read a couple of surveys before we get to the interview with uh, with Michael. Oh, and also reminder: I'm coming to Oakland, uh, July 20th and 21st. I'm going to be interviewing uh, Jamie DeWolf, who who's a poet and the grandson of uh, L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, and. Um, and also, I'll be interviewing Glenn Washington, uh, who is uh, the host of Snap Judgment, the podcast Snap Judgment. And I'll put a link up to um, for a place to buy tickets. On, uh, in fact, I think the 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 place to go for tickets is um, EastBayExpress dot com slash MentalPod. I think that's right. Oh God, lazy, lazy again that's not the dj voice by the way getting very very mixed uh i'd say 70 to 80% pro dj voice uh you know probably about 10% um i know those numbers don't add up uh anti dj voice and uh both both of you feel very strongly so i'm torn i kind of want to do it but i kind of don't and uh if you could just, if you guys could let me know a way to please everybody all the time, uh, it's the solution I've been looking for my whole life. All right, let's get to these surveys. This, this is, uh, these are from the struggle in a sentence survey. And uh, E is for element. Elephant um, describes her depression. Standing in the kitchen at 11 at night, holding the dirty spoon you just used to eat peanut butter straight out of the jar in parentheses your dinner trying to work up the energy to wash said spoon realizing that in the time you've spent thinking about this you could have washed the spoon 50 times over dropping the dirty spoon into the sink and going back to play solitaire on your computer oh my god that! the kitchen sink is the dining hall of the depressed I eat so many fucking meals standing between the stove and the sink trying to eat as fast as I can so that I can get to something that might bring me pleasure. <laughs> oh my God, that one rang true for me. Um, this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Tina Fey, makes my pants fit funny. I don't even know what that means, but I like it. Uh, does it mean he has a boner? I'm not sure. But about his anger issues, he writes, there are people from my past who should never ever encounter me in the woods alone note to self um and then this one is by shrink the shrink and she writes about her love addiction Stopping at a red light and making eye contact with the guy in the car to the left of me. In the instant that my eyes lock with his, I am launched into a wild fantasy about how he will roll down his window and ask for my phone number. I enumerate it to him digit by digit and he will memorize it and call me the next day. He will bring flowers to pick me up for our first date. And we will subsequently manage to fall head over heels in love for one another, move in together, get engaged, get married, make a baby, grow old and die. I'm fucking insane. Seven years into recovery, the fantasies have become worse than they were when I was sticking my fingers down my throat eight times a day. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job. Mental illness At least 20 years. When I left Chicago in 1994, um, so probably 22 years, I haven't seen you.
0: Yeah, I didn't realize it was that long, but you're right, because the last time I lived here was like 17, 18 years ago, but I hadn't seen you, yeah, right, for quite a while before that. Yeah. It's been a while. We used to see each other all the time.
1: That's good to see you. Michael is a uh, stand-up comedian from, uh, you're originally from Chicago. Um and uh Tony Boswell is with him. Tony is also a stand-up comedian from uh Chicago. Now he lives in South Carolina.
0: That's right.
1: South Carolina. And uh he sh- he's, uh, he's shooting this. I'm I'm not uh I'm not sure what for, but God God bless whoever uh has to see my bloated face on uh on the internet. Um so where do we where do we start with uh with your your story, Mike? You're, uh, you're how old?
0: I am a, uh, oh wow, I'm still dating. Um, I'm 53.
1: Oh, we're the same age.
0: We're the yeah, same age. Yeah, class absolutely. of eighty-one.
1: Tony, you too?
0: Wow. I'm actually class of eighty, summer, class. Of oh, 80. <laughs> half a credit short. D- does that
1: mean you fucked up? <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Only a half a credit, but yeah, just, uh, messed up. Yeah. Well, wait, cl- class of eighty. That would mean that you graduated early. No, no, actually no, I'm 53, I'll be 54 Oh, okay You
1: fuck up (laughs) You fuck up
0: I was not a diligent student at all,
1: believe me How many shit gigs have we worked together? How many bowling alleys? uh, VFW
0: halls? Wisconsin bars? Tons of them Tons of them I don't know how much you estimate But I think in 14 years I estimate I did probably like Close to 6,000 shows, five 6,000 shows, and probably 500 were quality. <laughs> did you
1: watch or have you watched Making a Murderer?
0: Yes, I watched Making a Murderer and I made a comment about that. What did you if say? I may say. And I said, um, the recipe to Making a Murderer was uh, one part Dateline and two parts water. <laughs> I
1: had flashbacks watching that show because of the accents or the dialect. I had flashbacks to shitty Wisconsin one nighters that when the dad would talk, Stephen Avery's dad would talk. I was like, Oh my God, it feels like somebody talking to me after the show, telling me a joke. I should, I should tell.
0: Oh yeah. I, I worked one nighters. What I loved is when you kind of worked like a gig and it was like a week gig but it was a mm-hmm. string of one-niners mm-hmm. so it was like a week but it was six different locations and i used to work clubs where i remember one time i was in the bathroom and a guy asked me and and he knew that i was there for the show because there were no blacks in town <laughs> <laughs> you know often that they knew that i was sure. actually an entertainer because they knew that i wasn't living in a neighborhood yeah
1: that uh, that sounds about right. Um so where do we where do we start with your story? Were you raised in Evanston?
0: Yes, I was raised in Evanston.
1: Okay, and your dad was a really successful was he a lawyer or politician? Yeah.
0: yeah, he was both. He was uh an alderman there for 12 years and um yeah, he had his own law practice.
1: And what what was uh home life like for you growing up?
0: Um well, my parents uh they got like divorced when I was 10 or 11 years old. Um my father you know, he passed away, God bless us. So, um, unfortunately, he had a lot of vices, and he was a womanizer. So, he was in and out of the the house when we were growing up. You know, they would break up, then he would move back in, and they would break up, and then he would move back in. But um, there was my brother and I at that time. He's like 15 months older. Um, childhood for me was, wasn't very good. Uh, um, my mother was physically abusive, so... To the point where uh, I had to move out of the house when I was, like, 16 years old. She was because still was hitting just... you? Yeah. Oh, my God. Was she uh,
1: verbally and emotionally abusive, too?
0: Um, she wasn't necessarily very ver- verbally abusive, but she was very explosive. And she, uh, you know, a lot of times parents, you know, you, you, you try to figure out something to do. Obviously, hitting a child is the easiest thing that you can do. Um, and But she would always, that would be the first Resort, uh, for something, is that she would become physical, uh, and it was pretty bad.
1: Uh, Can you give me some examples? If you're, if you're comfortable,
0: yeah, yeah, I'm comfortable with it. Um, slapping, um, hitting me with shoes, belts, throwing stuff at me, uh, like often. And um, actually, family members knew about it. Like later on in life, I talked to my aunt, who I used to spend a lot of time there. I virtually never wanted to leave. And um, it was pretty bad. You didn't want to leave your aunts. My aunt's house. Yeah, I yeah. used to go there. It was kind of like a, a refuge, and uh, I, I really wanted her were, to be my mother. Were they sisters? No, no, it's my father's sister. Okay, and she even even we talked recently, and she kind of wishes that she would have taken me. But you know, and I wasn't a perfect kid, but you know, I'm a parent too, and I always wonder, you know, if you're being abused, and then you end up being a bad kid. Is it because you were a bad kid or is it is it the abuse? You know, the way I say, you know, is 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 that children are like uh like a computer, you know, when you get it and there's no no programming on there and it you decide what goes on there. And I think it's the same thing with children. Unless a child has a mental illness, then they're pretty much born at par and and whatever information, whatever environment they have is gonna be the product of that.
1: Mhm. That makes sense to me. You know, I think genetically, some of us are, are, um, can probably, I think genetically, we react differently to, uh, our, whatever our environment throws at us. But yeah, I believe environment plays a huge part in, in who we become. Um, give me some snapshots from, from childhood or adolescence that you think, uh, are emblematic of, what your life was like, and and it could be a good moment. It could be a moment where you bonded with your dad or your mom, uh, the light side of things. Do you have good memories of of your mom and your dad?
0: Yeah, you know, it's weird. I've thought about that too. And as a couple, and as a family, as you know, as a unit, I really have one memory, and it was a memory one time where it was my brother and I, and my father and my mom. And we were at at the beach in Evanston, and we went like somewhere and we got like you know some chicken or something, and had like a blanket out there and I remember that was such a great time, and it was you know normal or you know quote unquote normal what i I saw other families well adjusted families how they were and and then i and and I kept thinking too, you know over the years, I was like can I think of another memory that was even similar to that, and i really i can't and and as for my father. The memories that I can remember is I think when I was a, a child when I was like maybe 3 4 years old he treated me much better you know and um and and this is really bad but he used to let me sip his beer and I would be around him and his his friends when they were like playing poker and and things of that sort but as I got older um he became way more just apathetic towards the family towards me yeah um, when it came to my mom and what it really just came, to, he was a womanizer and he was very busy because he was studying and he was working and he was going to Northwestern uh, law school. Actually, he was one of five black students and uh, one of the students was Fred Hammerhead Williamson. Actually, oh, really? He was one of the students at Northwestern when he was going to school there and uh, and he went to Northwestern law school. so. He had to really, really work hard to get where he was at, and you know we didn't it wasn't a scholarship situation, so you know, um, my grandparents worked extra jobs, and my mom's mom helped pay for his tuition and uh he was a very, very busy person uh but I don't know he just had his his demons, and when it came to me, I don't know if it's because I didn't excel like he did um, and I didn't have the same aptitude that he had I wasn't analytical uh that maybe kind of a disappointment in that area. My brother really excelled. My brother's like, you know, on the Dean's list and, and, and all that was an avid reader and, you know, and I was an avid, you know, happy days watcher <laughs> <laughs> and I dream of Genie. You know, I don't think I ever cracked the book as, you know, as an adolescent,
1: now uh, the neighborhood that you grew up in, Evanston, uh, I know uh, racially it's a mixed area. There's a very wealthy area of Evanston, and then there's a not so wealthy area of Evanston, or at least it used to be. Um, the area that you lived in, what what was that like, and how did you feel uh, as a black kid uh, navigating that that environment?
0: It was probably lower middle class, a middle class, um, mostly African American, probably. A hundred percent African-American at that time. Now it's, it's different. And, um, but you know, we assimilated, you know, within white culture, as well as black culture. And, um, because we, we went to school in Skokie, we lived in Evanston, but we actually went to school in Skokie and, and which is those very white area. Oh my God. They were predominantly white. And, um, it was just, you know, Evanston and where we lived, it was just right across the canal bank. Into Skokie, we, we would actually walk to school often, and it was just kind of a different kind of lifestyle. You know, I, I grew up just like you. I grew up in the seventies. Um, it wasn't in Skokie, in particular, it wasn't that racially diverse. Uh, I Sk- remember Skokie was mostly a Jewish area, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, yes, mostly Jewish. Actually, we lived in Evanston, and at one point, when I was in high school, we moved into Timber Ridge and Skokie. You know, my, my father made a lot of money, so he was real successful, and we bought like a big house in Timber Ridge. And when we moved into the house, we pulled in with the U-Haul, and three squad cars converged on us. Wow. Yes. When we moved in. Wow. And what did they say? They were the kind of like you know if you were in our you know, ne- kind of that kind of thing. If you were in your neighborhood, you know, it'd be kind of suspect. And um, what was great is that my uncle lived four houses away. My aunt was a real estate agent and sold my father the house. And my uncle was a detective in Winneka. And he came over and he saw what was going on. He went, yeah, I know exactly what you're doing. They were trying to do intimidate you into oh, changing yeah. your mind? Yeah, well, I'm not even really sure. I think they just were just welcoming us to <laughs> Skokie. Was there a facade yeah. of welcoming? Or was it? were they uh,
1: trying to make you feel uncomfortable?
0: Well, they didn't have a bunk cake or anything like that. I think they- <laughs> I think were, it was were, pretty clear what their motivation was. Were there sirens on? There were no sirens on okay, at but all. But they just rolled up. Yeah, and that was just because at that point they didn't decide whether they were going to be abusive physically or not. And do you remember <laughs> the them saying? About to any, it away. Do you remember them saying anything specifically to you or your family? Not really, but they were just they were questioning whether or not we were the homeowners. Uh, my father was very. Uh, I hate using this word, militant, because when you use the word militant, it, 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 it's like if you're speaking up for your rights you're, and you're black, then you're militant. <laughs>
1: That's, you're a troublemaker.
0: Exactly. You're how dare a troublemaker. You, how dare you claim your Bill of Rights? Exactly. You want equality? <laughs> so... Um, it was just ridiculous, but my father never backed down from a fight. Um, he marched like in the sixties. Um, he was a city councilman in Evanston. He was known to uh, jump on the table and scream to make his point, and um, just you know was a very very strong, tough person.
1: So, give me some other some other uh, memories from childhood or adolescence.
0: Um, just uh just kind of a volatile time, you know, um, for back you? and forth. Yeah. Back and forth between my mom and my, my father's house. Uh, I, uh, had to move out of my mother's house because of the abuse. Uh, you know, my father apathetic or not, he just, he knew that I needed to, to not be there. And, um, I went to my father's and I lived there and I wasn't getting any supervision. At least my mom thought I wasn't. Then I went back to live with my mom and I remember I was maybe there a month, And then I was out and then I missed curfew by like 45 minutes to an hour. And I came in and my mom, and she was actually pregnant at the time with my sister. I came in and then she tried to hit me and I grabbed her hand and I gently, I pushed her onto the couch and I said, you'll never hit me again. And that's, she's never hitting me since she's never, I've never been hit by my mom since I moved right back with my father and I was like 16 years old.
1: I have heard that from so many people. It's almost like they like they wake that parent out of a stupor. Uh, time and time again, I hear some child say it stand up for themselves and it's it's like they snap their parent out of out of some other reality.
0: Well, you know, you know, some people are okay with corporal punishment. Because what they do is they look at the examples of children that were hit and they end up being, you know, a a normal member of society or they excel, but they don't look at all the other kids Hmm. who beat their kids and then their kids beat their kids and it's cyclical. And they don't understand that, you know, violence breeds violence. It's very simplistic. Violence breeds violence. And so they look at all these 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 winning examples as opposed you know ten percent examples as opposed to the the seventy percent who are in prison or or the forty percent who uh struggle through life and um because they feel like they they weren't loved and, and everything else. I'm not mushy over love, but you know i have you know I have a daughter and and everyone on Facebook knows how I feel about my daughter, and we're very, very close. And it's really weird when you're a parent and, and you raise and you wait for this child to be born. Like I love my daughter before she was, she even existed. I, lo- I love the thought of her and imagine that. And this child comes in and you pamper this kid and you, you watch over this child and you go from that to one day deciding to physically strike your child. And I don't understand that transformation.
1: Yeah, I'm not a parent, so I don't know, but I, I can easily wrap my head around an adult fe- feeling overwhelmed by being a parent. And I suppose if, if you have something in you that you get triggered into a state of just pure adrenaline and I I don't know what else it's it's the only explanation really and it's not a rationalization for it but it's the only explanation I can think for why somebody would would cross that boundary is that something overtakes them that where where they lose um control I don't know I don't know but it's a, it's an interesting question
0: I can understand that too but I felt you know my my kid is a really good kid and but there were like very few times yeah. where I felt i can't say overwhelmed but you know i wasn't very happy maybe with her when she was much younger but i knew that hitting her wasn't the answer that wasn't going to improve her behavior whatever she was doing and if i were to hit her to stop that behavior it, but it didn't modify the behavior right that's the thing that, that
1: is so obvious to everybody else but i think it's not obvious to the parent in that moment um I think it's just a lack of of coping tools. I think deep down they know it's probably not going to um, help their child learn, but it probably feels good to them, or at least cathartic in the moment to to let loose. That is the only thing I can I can think of.
0: Well, it was really interesting though. Is like like Mike Tyson doesn't hit his kids.
1: <laughs> well, he wouldn't have any kids if he did. <laughs> if you ever
0: seen him with his children and when he had his reality show, you could see he was a loving father. And I was thinking about my mom growing up, and Mike Tyson didn't hit his kids. <laughs> uh, so describe what you were like
1: inside in your childhood and your adolescence. What was emotionally going on with you? What were the th- the th- how did you feel about yourself? What were the thoughts you had about yourself and your place in the world and your future and or was it just not, was it not really on your radar? What were what were you obsessed with? What how did you feel about yourself? Kind of well, g- give us a picture
0: of. It was it was always on my radar. I had a brother that excelled. And, you know, these aren't excuses either. You know, especially when you become an adult there are your own decisions. <laughs> Whatever decisions it doesn't matter what your childhood was like. When you become an adult those decisions bad or good belong to you but yeah i think i always felt not enough you know on one end my father's is a very successful attorney and politician and big man on campus what i mean by that you know there's two separate like societies at least when i was growing up there's a white society and there was a black society and in a black society my father was the man and there was no one more important uh influential than my father was growing up and so I always felt like I didn't live up to that example. And then on the other end, I had my mom hitting me. And so I guess really, really came down to is I just, you know, obviously it breeds low self esteem. You don't really feel like you're worth anything. Um, As well as I really lived in my mom's house in fear. I remember when um, my ex wife Mary was pregnant with Sydney, we had a condo. In Chicago, Sydney's your daughter. Sydney's my daughter, and we had a condo in Chicago, and it was a one bedroom. And we had to get rid of it, and we needed a larger place. And my mom was a real estate agent, so we bought a gut rehab. It wasn't ready. We ended up having to stay with my mom for like about six weeks. And I remember walking into that house, and we we stayed in my old room, and I felt that fear wow. as an adult. It was it was you could cut it with a knife. Just the the tension in the house. And the, and the memories and the feeling like I was a little boy. And you, you know? weren't safe. Yes. Yeah.
1: Isn't it amazing how that sticks with us?
0: Yeah. Well, it's traumatic. It's it's just like um, my girlfriend, she uh, dog sits, and she was talking about And she's had two dogs like this that she sat for. One's actually on Prozac. <laughs> yes. One is actually on Prozac. And um, here it has a lot of heartburn. Sorry. But... <laughs> Because I, we could talk about that, but it, it, th- those kind of drugs do that to you. But anyway, um, but those dogs were abused, and they were abused, and these dogs are so timid and and are afraid of people, and um, the same thing happens with Homo sapiens. It's no different for humans than it is, you know, with dogs. We're all animals, and and we all, you know, fear is a very a base thing, you know. So
1: I agree. I think the two primary uh things at our core are fear and love and it's hard to experience both at the same time maybe a shitty relationship is the only
0: time we can (laughs) experience fear and love (laughs) feeling like we're going to get dumped or something that's a nice sentiment on valentine's day (laughs) um so what's the what's the next uh chapter
1: of your of your life you you move out from your mom's you're now you know in your late teens your dad is his his life is getting bigger and he's getting richer
0: yeah i I move out and i live with my uh father and my father's girlfriend Uh, my father's girlfriend didn't like me she had her own daughter she treated her differently than she treated me it was really like a cinderella situation but i wasn't getting hit so you know you choose getting hit or apathy well apathy doesn't leave any marks physically that's such a great quote <laughs> everywhere i live with him he put me in the basement <laughs> there were two places that we lived and i remember when we got the house at Timberridge and skokie there was actually a room available upstairs for me but he yeah, me living in the basement. And let me tell you something, it's not a lot to complain about. You know, I was a black kid living in Skokie and Timber Ridge, you know, in the seventies. So with all my other friends, I was like Will Smith and Bel Air. And I was like that. I was the man, you know. But uh it's pretty clear what everyone else is living, you know, you're pretty much living in the servants' quarters. <laughs> without having to actually serve people you were you were in steerage in your own house (laughs) yeah uh so what were
1: your did you have demons at this at this point in your life yeah did you have obsessions or addictions
0: yeah i had demons I, i think i didn't really understand a lot of things about myself um, I remember, uh, and, and later on in life, I realized that I really had OCD, like really bad. I remember being a child, like 10 years old, and we had a big table, one place that we lived, and there were maybe six chairs around the table, and if I touched one chair, I had to touch every chair. So I felt kind of odd. I actually was going to therapy in the sixth or seventh grade. By whose choice? Um Not my choice. <laughs> I wasn't writing checks then. But uh, no, I was sent to therapy. I think I was getting in trouble in school. Do you, do you
1: remember which, which parent sent you there? Probably your mom would be my Probably guess. my
0: mom. I was living with my mom. My father was in and out of the house. Um, I think I was living with my mom. Yeah, I was living with my mom at the time. and But I, it was like an odd situation because I already felt a little bit like an outcast just for my behavior sometimes, as well as I would have to leave school like one day a week. You know, like at noon or one o'clock, and then I would go to Evanston Hospital and I would see this therapist. And all we did for like two years straight is we played Monopoly. What? Yeah, for two years straight. I, would I there I, be- we probably had four conversations. Yeah. Did you win? <laughs> <laughs> well, a good therapist would let a child win, right? <laughs>
1: I don't recall. Or don't let them win and see how they react. Oh, yeah, that too. How do you feel about me owning Park Place? (laughs) What does that bring up inside you? (laughs) And I think he was the banker, so he could have been cheating. By the way, I always feel like Park Place and uh, and Boardwalk are very overrated. I think. uh, What What are the um, Baltic is what you want. Uh, I I like the ones you go you go down from go you go straight down that one. You take a right, and then at the end of that one is the best value. Uh, New York, the the ones that are like gold colored,
0: hey, orange is gold. Orange, orange. Yeah.
1: those are the best value.
0: They are the best value because they were like they're like they're like upper middle class. They're not like that high class, but they they brought in a lot of money. But you didn't yes. have to put a lot down. Exactly, it's kind of like a ten percent down thing. You didn't yes. really have. You know, you're playing you're paying kind of PMI yeah. on it, but somehow you're turning over a profit. <laughs> Yeah.
1: it inflicts the most damage with the with the uh, minimum amount of investment
0: exactly and that was that's the that's right before the uh, the chess thing right where you win you, if you land on there you you mm-hmm. might be able to get whatever Free parking. Was. But, yeah free parking or something like that yeah. i don't recall anyway. i play now on an ipad so it's kind of it's a different it's whole new game it's now. fun but there's too many graphics I too know many that you
1: pointed out that you take over Tony just said I love that you pointed out that you take a right as opposed to the Monopoly board where you hang
0: a left. (laughs) You take a left and you have to do civic duty. So, um, continuing with, uh, so you had gone to therapy as a kid. It sounds like you didn't really get much out of it. No, I I really didn't get much out of it. You know, honestly, when I got older, Like maybe 18, 19, you know, I would act out like, you know, fake suicide attempts. I remember one time actually. In in front of anybody in particular? No, no, actually never in front of anyone. I remember one time I I like took like a lot of Tylenol, but it was like, you know, kind of a attention kind of grabber. Um, But actually I really, I was in the hospital like three days because Tylenol actually acts on your liver and you, you know, Mm -hmm. you can do a lot of damage. So I remember one time I did that, and I was in the hospital for like three days. But, you know, what I should have been thinking about is, if your parent is apathetic, if it was my father, <laughs> a cry for help isn't heard. <laughs> so your 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 dad didn't really react to it? No, no, not really at all. No, I, I, I don't think it really mattered to him. I think he, he thought it was a game or something like that, but... uh I think it I mean it kind of started you know a series of just acting out and and doing destructive things um later on um and i I think I told you about this a little while back later on in life I found out that I was bipolar you know after uh many years and many different uh therapists and psychiatrists and finally got a diagnosis and that's what happens you know when you're mentally ill you have a mental illness is you're You're so many different things before you're something that's defined. And you try so many medications. You feel like a guinea pig. I can't tell you how many different. I've taken medications where I couldn't wake up the next day. I've taken uh, medications where within an hour I was in a fetal position. Um, Just so many different meds until they can find out. And And what they do really, I don't think they really necessarily put you on something that 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 will help your life or because there's not a cure for for bipolar disease you know Mm -hmm. it's chronic um but obviously you can reduce the symptoms through medication but i think what they do is they find out what your body can tolerate and then they stick
1: (laughs) uh there there is apparently a new thing uh on the market where they um do they do they swab the inside of your mouth and then they find out what through dna what you can um what your body can um i I don't know what the word would be um assimilate or there's a word that (laughs) my brain has gone to screensaver um (laughs) what you can metabolize and what you can't and so then that rules out and apparently it's not 100 percent accurate but it, it can help a psychiatrist hone in on what might be the most effective drug for you. And apparently it's not that expensive. It's like 250 or $300. Well, I mean, it's expensive when you, it's not expensive when you consider the benefits of what it can do, how, how much it can minimize the, uh, the guessing in, taking meds cuz I agree with you I've I've probably taken 30 different meds in my life and it's a it's a waiting game and it's very frustrating
0: no it is very and I like actually that's that's a real process that they do that huh you yeah. can actually do yeah
1: that. people uh I had not heard of it until recently and so I threw it out there on the podcast and heard back from a ton of people that have said that it is uh it's a real thing it works and they highly recommend it
0: What if they like swab you and and they figure out all you can tolerate is marijuana?
1: (laughs) Fire one up, I guess, for illicit
0: drugs. Well, that's great. Then they're you know they're they're making advances in in, in medication. Look, you know the pharma (laughs) companies—they're just going to put out whatever that the consumer will will, will eat up or gobble up. You know, so I, I just I don't know. You know, when it comes to even psychiatry, they put so many medications out there on you. I mean, how – you know, I literally have probably – there was a three-year span of time that I was probably on eight to 11 different medications. Oh, that's a lot. And – yeah, and – um and we settle. Like I take a, a drug called Lamicto, and I take Wellbutrin, and Wellbutrin so do for I. I depression. Take both of them too. Yeah, really. And Lamictol for. And in a
1: little Celexa and uh, some Buspar, and I'm
0: ready to go. Wow, that's what I take. Yeah. Wasn't Selexa that drug in side effects? The movie? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Okay. It I sounds the like one, the drug. <laughs> the, the one that
1: was a, a nightmare for me was uh, Abilify. That was, and it was twenty five hundred dollars a
0: month. Oh really? Yeah. Wow that's insane yeah okay i'm glad it was a nightmare for me so you're you were probably what a middle class performer with no insurance you either have to be rich or poor that's Yeah. You get covered yeah the middle Very poor or, or rich
1: yeah well this was uh about a year and a half ago that uh that i did and i only did it for a month and it was it it was great for three four weeks and then it just turned just absolutely turned, but i've talked about it ad nauseum on the podcast so i don't want to i don't want to bore the listener with with more about my abilify nightmare but for some people it works great so that's uh, that's meds in a in a nutshell well it's, i
0: think psychiatry is a, a bunch of guesswork and, you know for me it's like the horseshoe horseshoes and hand grenades of medicine <laughs> you know it's just uh, i guess it's just has throwing to. crap against the wall and seeing what sticks after years and years of uh therapists and psychiatrists um, I just, that's what I believe. And I think a lot of people, they just get on medication and they see a psychiatrist and they make sure that their, their levels are right and, mm-hmm. and they just don't go to therapy and they don't, you know, they, I just, I've given up really on therapy and and really my life has been good and it's under control and I'm productive and I don't think I need necessarily therapy. I think that experiences has taught me if I behave a certain way. It's Like Pavlov's dog, where I'm conditioned now to not misbehave because I know that I know the price to pay, mm. and I know I'm the only one paying that price. and what does misbehaving look like for you? What has it looked like for you at it at its worst? Um, going into bars many years ago, uh, I, I, I was probably kicked out of eleven bars in four years
1: and four in, in, in
0: Chicago for getting into arguments or fights with bartenders, you know just really petty stuff and you were you were drunk when you were getting thrown out of the bars oh yeah i was I was definitely dr- drunk absolutely i was uh I was drunk sometimes I probably didn't remember exactly what I was doing um one time, I actually got thrown out of a bar, though I was drunk because I was over tipping too much <laughs> what <laughs> I had a lot of money one time, a lot of money in my pocket, literally like eight thousand dollars in my pocket, and I was out partying and I was tipping a bartender twenty dollars every drink. And, and the they manager threw you. got sick of it What? and yeah, got very upset at me and I ended up getting thrown out of the bar. Now that's what happened in my head. I now, was going to probably say, was tipping $20 and I was probably doing something else at the same time. That makes more sense. But I, I just remember being thrown, thrown out of a bar also tipping well at the same time. And somehow I thought that that didn't make sense to me <laughs> in the back of the paddy wagon yeah. at and, the time. Uh, and drug
1: and alcohol, uh, uh, drug addiction and alcoholism runs in your, in your family tree, but you don't consider yourself to be an alcoholic or a drug addict?
0: No, cause I, I don't think just because you act out with drugs or alcohol for a period of time that that makes you an alcoholic, even if you have that predisposition genetically for that. Mm-hmm. I don't think that at all. I think that people, you know, people act out with sex, people act out with eating and all sorts of, uh, uh of things, um, that people do, and and the root cause might not have anything to do with you know with that vehicle.
1: What from what I remember uh with with you when when we were hanging out and uh we were coming up as comedians, I remember money seemed like it was a uh, almost like an addiction uh to you. Is would, would that be uh, a fair assessment that it was very important to you and I just remember you always buying something new going through a lot of money
0: is that that a fair assessment money ain't nothing but a dollar phase i don't know is that a fair assessment of my memories of uh yeah i spend money like water there's no doubt about it i mean i still spend money i don't know if i do it like i used to before but yeah without a doubt i spent a lot but if you know anything about bipolar disease oh when you're in mania it is i remember you would have like a different
1: 500 hundred dollar leather jacket Every $2, other leather $2,000 leather jacket. $2, leather jacket. Yeah, yeah. And this is in 1989, yeah.
0: 90. Yeah. And I didn't have Eddie Murphy rolls at the time. And I was spending that kind of money. How were so. you paying for this? No, I was paying. Obviously, I was, you know, I wasn't robbing banks. I was paying for it, you know, uh, through what I was doing for a living. And, but I mean, were you going into debt? No, I actually wasn't going into debt. I was still paying my bills and I still had really nice things, but I wasn't saving money. Okay. And, um, but yeah, you know, and, and one thing too is like, it's bipolar disease too. It's also a personality, I guess you could say defect. I, you know, I, I would think merchants wouldn't think it's a defect, but it could be a personality defect as well. But also, I, I watched my father do that. My father spent money like water, like mm-hmm. you would not, like it had no value whatsoever. And so I learned part of that from him. There's no doubt about that. But yeah, you know, I, I think one time you probably recall where yeah I was probably would as a as a comedian driving a forty thousand dollars sports car <laughs> that I put eight thousand dollars into it. I was a performer for many years and I really literally kind of self destructed. I didn't I didn't have a nervous break, breakdown per se or anything like that, but really just dis- displaying odd behavior and like not being able to like cope. Um, I don't know, really just not getting along with people too well finding fought and others too easily just, just, and also just displaying bad behavior. It's really hard for me to actually define what it is, but I will tell you this, that were I you got, not,
1: were you not showing up for gigs? Were you telling people off? Were oh, you I remember, isolating? What, I remember, what were you doing?
0: I remember one time I wasn't able to cope with things that people would normally be able to cope with, like breakups and relationship problems. And, mem- and so what would you do? How did you not cope? Oh, I remember one time and it was a really an awful thing that I did. I was working a gig and I was out of town and I was actually driving the headliner. Now I didn't want to. And I told the booker over and over again and he kind of forced it on me. And then I was having problems with my girlfriend at the time. And we did one night at the gig and they were going to go do like, you know, four other cities over four days. And I remember I just left. Like I didn't finish the week. And you didn't tell him. I, I, I didn't tell him. I left him stranded and I was so paranoid about this relationship and, and and wanting to fix it right there at that moment that I didn't really care about the career that I had put so much into. Um, and I remember really, I was probably out of the business within less than a year.
1: Because you had burned so many bridges.
0: Well, I burned a lot of bridges. I was still getting work, but I did burn a lot of bridges, but I just couldn't cope and couldn't handle it anymore. But, yeah, without a doubt, yeah, I was a, a bridge burner. I didn't really think about the future. Yeah, you burned a nice bridge, though. Oh, you yeah. You burned
1: a nice bridge. It was even. You you lit both ends. I lit both I ends yeah. and the middle
0: yeah. sometimes. the middle. The, <laughs> it was nice. The,
1: the two the two uh, balls of
0: firewood meet in the middle. Yeah, and yeah. And it was uh, actually aesthetically very pleasing. <laughs> I burned bridges like no one else. And this was so funny is that every single com- comedian that I work with, completely realizes that was like, how did you even have a career that long? But uh, yeah, I burned many bridges. The interesting thing is, and one thing that has showed me maturity uh, that I have matured is I had a horrible divorce and horrible relationship with my ex-wife and we are really good friends now and have been for years now for quite a few years. That must be so nice for your child to not feel in between. Yeah. It almost makes me tear because of, and my, my ex also will admit the damage that we did to her that she didn't deserve. Have two parents that were either at odds or never spoke to each other, or, or or co-parented. You know, and what what made that change? I I just grew up. I stopped blaming her and stopped hating her, and um, I I was just tired of it. Would you
1: talk bad about your wife to your child? Never. That's good. Never. Did she talk bad about you?
0: Yes. I found out. Many years later, my my ex actually admitted it, and she says, "You know, Sydney said that you never did that." And yeah, why would I love my daughter? And I'm not saying my ex doesn't love her, but why would I do that? That's abusive. That's how is that any different from really striking her? So no, I mean I'm going to diminish her mom in her eyes. I would never do that. So no, and 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 I had at at times I thought hatred, pure hatred towards my ex, but no, I I did not diminish her in, in my daughter's eyes and um, for many many years it was I had to bite my tongue um, it was a, a tough divorce um, tough situation my daughter lived in New York and she visited back and forth and she's my heart and I missed her um, like you wouldn't believe it, it actually did a lot of psychological damage to me and um, but I, I'll tell you that my ex-wife is my confidant she's one of my best friends easily I I, dis- I could discuss anything with her Um, I think she did a a heck of a job raising my daughter. My daughter is an incredible, capable uh, young woman, um, talented, uh, 23, smart, talented, has a a huge heart, Uh, couldn't be more proud of her. And and really, you know, my ex-wife, I was fun dad. And my ex-wife had to do the hard work. She was boundary, the heavy lifting. Boundary, mom. She was the boundary. Consequences. Yeah, I was the pushing candy on no, her at nineteen. No, no, wonder, she <laughs> <of you>. no <laughs> wonder she was resentful of you. Oh, no
1: wonder she was resentful of you. Yeah, oh, I can yeah. imagine how hard that's got to be. The to be have the, ba- the bad cop thrust upon you.
0: Oh yeah, that was I was visiting Disneyland. There's yeah. no doubt about it. I spoiled her, her whole uh, her whole childhood. So, but you know, so that made me feel that I I, I grew a lot. Also. Say eight, nine years ago, the comedians that I didn't get along with, that I, I had problems with, mm-hmm. I I contacted 98% of them and apologized. And I would say probably 90% of them accepted that, and, were, and they were really cool. What did you have to apologize for? Really, honestly, I think one thing that I did do, and I didn't really realize at the time that I was doing it to that degree, is maybe bad-mouthing comedians or my opinion on whether or not they were funny or talented, which I should have saved that opinion. I should have kept that to myself. Who am I to tell someone that they're not funny or or to make that assertion about anyone because they could feel that way about me. And, uh, and I think I did too much of that. It's very petty. Mm-hmm. And I think, and, and Tony, I were talking about it. I think at that time in my life, I felt like I was in competition with other comedians. But of course, I learned that you're only in competition with yourself. And it took me a long time to learn that. But you're only in competition with your own best efforts. So would you say that that was kind of the
1: uh, lowest period of your life uh, when you were uh, post-divorce and your career was kind of uh, imploding? Or did things get worse after that?
0: No, things got worse after that. Yeah, I had a lot of struggles. Um, Talk about that. I've I had things... Um, that i thought that i wouldn't survive talk about um that. i've been institutionalized before on a couple of occasions Four. I, um just i remember one time i was just hanging out uh my girlfriend had broken up with me and you would be perfectly candid about it. it it makes me seem like a cad but i'm going to say this is that i sent the, the, a text to the wrong woman <laughs> and a relationship that was 5 years long was instantly over <laughs> via technology. <laughs> who did who did you send the text to? I sent it to like the girlfriend on the side as opposed to the actual girlfriend. And it was kind of cryptic, but it was hard to explain. And and that and that night I kind of like I was hanging out with the the other girl the girl not the real girlfriend, but mm-hmm. the you know, the one I was cheating with. And I was, uh, I was actually, I was prescribed Xanax and then took a few too many. I think I made a phone call to my brother and might have said I was going to hurt myself. And the next thing, the next day, I woke up like in a hospital and mm-hmm. didn't, didn't even recall what, what occurred and, um, spent maybe five or six days in, in, in a mental ward and uh, it was horrible. Um, I didn't eat. I lost nine pounds in six days. Wow. Yeah. And uh so it was you know, I've had you no know, struggles. Did anything positive come out of being institutionalized? No, really, because I I think they house people. They don't necessarily treat people. I think some good ones do. I, I yeah, this wasn't a good one. <laughs> it doesn't sound like <laughs> it.
1: Cause, and there yeah. also can be good ones, but the person is not willing to yeah. um change their perspective on their life
0: in the world. No, this, this hospital I think had a Popeyes in the hospital with one of those bulletproof little windows. It was like Seriously? That. It was on the west side of Chicago. It was it was horrific. I felt like I was like snatched out of like Africa and put you know in the bowels of a boat <laughs> and sent across seas. Oh my god. Because they took me from Evanston to the west side <laughs> of Chicago. And I'm not that kind of brother. <laughs> so and I knew it was a long ride and I wasn't going anywhere good. Have you ever um gotten shit
1: for or been judged for not being uh, brother enough, for not being uh not having enough street cred? Or
0: Many times. I'm talk, what you talk, call a high yellow in my uh in my race. Talk about that. And I speak a certain way. I don't think that I speak that way, but I speak a certain way with some blacks where I'm uppity and they think that I'm trying to be something that I'm not. And really what it comes down to is is my environment, my mom's very smart and very articulate, and my father was brilliant. So, you know, like a parrot, I mimic that. And I speak a certain way that a lot of African Americans think when blacks speak that way, That you feel that you're not black, it's an inner racist thing in my in my culture. It's it's a really strange thing. And when you're when you're a comedian and you're a certain way and you work certain clubs as opposed to you know you work traditionally white clubs and you don't work black clubs. Did you work uh, All Jokes Aside? No, no. Uh, All Jokes
1: Aside for the listener was an all black club uh, on the south side, south side or in the city of Chicago.
0: It was uh, was South Loop, right? It was in South Loop, yeah. 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 Oh, if I would have worked that club, my 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 jokes would have literally been aside. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: what did it feel like, and what does it feel like when you are judged for not being "quote
0: unquote" black enough? You feel like you can't do anything about that. What what are you supposed to be? Does it hurt? Does it annoy you? Do you does it roll off your back? It 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 makes me feel sad for yourself for or for the
1: situation
0: it makes me feel sad for my race that we would be that we're fighting each other as opposed to helping each other and that we would you know Spike Lee in school days he chronicled it perfectly a light skin black skin you know this civil war this battle that Chris Rock kind of talked about in a special and it's like how are we going to get ahead if we're still fighting each other over skin color mm-hmm. we we're being we're being you know People are prejudiced against us and we're you know, we're being denounced because of our skin color purely because of the pigment of our skin and we're doing the same thing to each other. Yeah. It it really a lot of people feel and I feel too that it comes from slavery and we're light skinned African Americans or blacks, we're treated differently than dark skinned blacks. We're often in the house and treated, you know, better than, you know, the field slaves and I think there's that resentment still still, you know, to this day, that resentment is still there. I just think it's very sad. I, do I ever think that it, it's going to, I was going to say abolish. That's a horrible word. You talk <laughs> about slavery. But do, I, do I ever think that that will be a, a non factor? I don't think it will because, you know, jealousy and hatred is innate in humans.
1: So, talk about some some other uh, struggles. How many how many times have you been uh, institutionalized?
0: Um, probably two or three times. Okay, maybe three times. Yeah, in and, my entire life. Yeah. And were they always over suicide attempts? Um, usually, like, me taking some medication. Uh, not necessarily trying to really hurt myself, but just being careless. Like the night that I, I refer to with my girlfriend, I you know I had a bottle. Of Xanax that was because I wasn't taking it I was being prescribed it and it probably had a hundred and eighty of them and I took like four or five but I wasn't used to taking that drug so therefore my body wasn't able to uh, would you say earlier Assimilate, metabolize metabolize yeah. it <laughs> <laughs> was able to metabolize it and 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 I was drinking as well and um, you're
1: lucky you didn't die
0: well possibly you know what i learned that night is i guess the police were, were talking to me and if i had only had either the alcohol or the drugs in my system they wouldn't have taken me but having both and all of a sudden did you arrest. tip them well <laughs> no like i said i wasn't even like i don't even remember the conversation they're taking you was-
1: away in handcuffs and you're like Aren't you that kid that moved into that house in Evanston? You look
0: so familiar. I knew you were a problem. Yeah, it was them. They went from Skokie cops to Chicago cops. Yeah.
1: Um, Any other snapshots from your life that that you'd like to uh, share with us?
0: Well, you know, I'll, I'll say this is I'm a survivor, and I'm a survivor of myself mainly. But I'm a survivor. I mean, we're discussing just a couple of things that I've been through in my life. I've been homeless on three occasions. And and, and it was interesting. How how
1: long were you homeless for?
0: Maybe six, seven months. But I actually had a roof over my head. It just wasn't. It was like the why. I see. And I've, I've had occasions. And it wasn't really a lack of money or income it was because i got an eviction at one point because i was not being responsible and you know when that when it goes on your record it takes years for you to be able to overcome that and i had the income you know but it was just you know getting someone to give me an apartment uh like i said institutionalized before uh you know been locked up for fighting um i was locked up many years ago i actually uh here in LA, I got into some trouble, maybe 18 years ago, and I spent like five days in jail. And what it what was, happened? It was it was like classic bipolar behavior. I think I was I stole something and I was drinking too much and just acting out and uh, just self destructing, you know. Uh, and I had to kind of take a, a step back. I didn't perform or write. I didn't write a joke for nine years after being a comedian for a living for 14 years. I didn't write a single joke for nine years. But then I got healthier. And what and, helped you
1: get healthier? Finding the right meds?
0: You know, that... I think also being diagnosed with something and actually knowing that something was wrong with me, um, as opposed to people... I remember... Uh,
1: <laughs> not thinking of it as you are a personal failure. No, yeah, I remember helped.
0: I remember my brother, who uh, we're not that close, but my brother who... Was always in competition with me, even in the negative. <laughs> who told me? Who told me that he was bipolar, and that, and I, and I, and and then, of course, I was just being really sarcastic, and, and I was like, "Oh, so you were really bipolar?" And I was like, "Oh, you were bipolar." And I was like, "Well, how did you get over it? Did you take meds? Whatever." He says, "No, I just, I just outgrew it, basically, or just, I just got over it, is what he told wow. me. Wow. He's like, "Yeah, you remember that time this happened to me? And yeah, I was diagnosed bipolar twenty years ago, and of course, I'm educated about bipolar disorder, and I know that it's chronic and that you never get rid of it. And there have been studies that if you, if if your body, if you did change, it's like literally forty years later, and so." It's just really, you know, the misunderstanding of mental illness. Uh, sometimes mentally ill people are treated like criminals. And they're treated like people who actually did something wrong as opposed to people who had an unlucky draw when it came to a chemical imbalance. And, true. Uh, and it's, it's sad. True. It really is sad. Yeah.
1: And yet there are also people who shirk their responsibility in managing their mental illness and will use it as an excuse when when they could be doing more. To help themselves and those around them, and, and that's who, when
0: I blame mental illness and people with mental illness when they're not taking care of themselves when they're aware that they need to be doing that. Yeah, there's
1: a responsibility on both sides, both society and those of us who who suffer. Uh, anything else
0: you'd like to share? Something us? positive about myself,
1: <laughs> dude? I think you've shared a lot of positive <laughs> yeah. shit about yourself. Can I
0: close here strong? <laughs> <laughs> no, the
1: fact that you're, uh, you know, you're there for your daughter and. Uh, you haven't acted out in in a while. You have haven't perspe- been in trouble.
0: I haven't been in trouble with, even with the law in twelve, thirteen years. It's been a long time. Uh, um, I just don't. That's. It's not a problem solver to get in trouble. It Just creates more problems. It
1: sounds like you've emotionally matured and come to understand maybe where your your acting out uh, was
0: was coming from. Is that is that a fair assessment? Well, you know, my childhood and the bipolar disease are two different things, and then also, you know, my responsibility as a person. You know, you know, some things are character defects, and they have nothing to do with the bipolar disease, and they have nothing to do with the awful childhood, and they're just mine, and, and I have to own. And that. that's how it gets
1: so complicated, is because all of those things can overlap, and on a certain day, you don't know: is this a character defect? Is this a chemical imbalance? Is this trauma? <laughs> what What is it? Uh, it's it's a mixed bowl of spaghetti
0: yeah yeah it is it, without a doubt it's a dim song of chaos <laughs> i like that
1: one better i like that one better um anything else you'd you'd like to uh talk about or no share? i just
0: want to tell you that just after not seeing you for 18 years you're just as attractive as you were <laughs> Just wanted to let you know you look striking actually you kind of have like that george clooney kind of like that gray coming in and very handsome man the- Tony,
1: would you put on some music, some yeah. something? I like Love sort of. Ballad by LTD. Can you put that on? Michael and I can. <laughs> actually, I'd like the Commodores once, twice, three times a lady. I think but, so. but
0: I will tell you, because at this point, I don't have to kiss your butt because the interview is over almost. But you are always one of my favorite comedians, always so smart. And what's interesting is I remember when I first met you. And do you know why? Mm-mm. Because I was headlining a show, and I think Joni Biford By- this, this yeah, was she, the booker. Yeah, I guess you could say Joni Biford was a booker. And I was closing, and I was headlining it, Never Seen You Before, and you blew me off the stage. Oh, dude, I'm sorry. You blew me off the stage, and I, I just went, I'm going to always hate that guy. <laughs> <laughs> but you've gotten over it. Yes, I, well, I'm dude, gotten I gotten always have
1: fond memories of you, and you made me laugh, and, uh, and I always enjoyed your, your company. You were, you were always a good soul in, uh, in my book.
0: Well, thank you, and you're right. And you're, you're I, I, without- I literally do not have a
1: single unfond memory of of you.
0: I don't with you either. And that was the weird thing is that there were certain comedians that I got along with just like Tony, Tony Boswell, a great comic. And and I've gotten along and never had any conflict with Tony or with you or many, many comedians. And there were just some that I did. But there were too many. And when you have a problem and it's many and it's just you, (laughs) you know what I mean? Then it's just you. (laughs) Yes. And it took me a long time to learn that. I have been in relationships with women where everything was going well, and I felt uncomfortable.
1: Was it that you felt like the other shoe was going to drop, so I'm going to make it drop?
0: No, because it was alien to me. Oh. It didn't feel like home.
1: That makes sense. That makes sense. It's what
0: you're used to, even if it's negative.
1: Yeah, like this Christmas tree is bare. Let's put an ornament on it that I recognize. Yeah, full chaos. Exactly. Little ornament.
0: It would be another woman.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, we got to end on that. That was such a (laughs) fucked up moment to end on. Uh, Michael, if people want to get a hold of you or uh, you know. Is there a
0: website? Is there a Twitter handle? Well, after this podcast, no one's going to want to get a hold of me. But uh, you would be surprised. <laughs> yeah, you would be surprised. Um, I would say uh, you can get a hold of me on Facebook under Michael Alexander. I have an open Facebook page. Uh, I have a Twitter page as well. What's your Twitter handle? Um, I really don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll find it out and we'll put it on the website. But for, I just started a production this. company. It's called. Uh, funny since 1985 productions and we're working on a couple of projects and
1: you're you're doing a documentary right now about the chicago comedy scene do you know what it's going to be called
0: yeah it's called laugh to your winded laugh to your wind it's a playoff of the windy city and you know laughing into your winded and we're filming and we'll be interviewing actually you um this week and um we've interviewed 70 80 comedians club owners writers Mm -hmm. producers and it's a very exciting project that uh, my friend Tony Boswell is, is an associate producer on and helping me a lot. And Dwayne Kennedy is a producer on it. And um, I, I'm i just loving it. It's like a big reunion, you know. Um, and the comedians are really behind it, which is great. So. Yeah.
1: Well, buddy, thank you for uh, for coming by and uh, sharing your story with us. And no it's, problem. And it's great to see you.
0: No, oh, and it's great to see you, too. And, and thank you for the bottled water.
1: You're welcome. I'm going to charge you for that, though. Okay. Well. now we're going to have an altercation yeah all right thanks thank you paul many many thanks to uh to michael and uh, as i said we'll have those if you want to uh connect to him, we'll have those links uh up on our website before i get to some surveys i want to remind you guys that there are a couple of different ways to support the podcast if you feel so inclined uh, you can go to our website, mentalpod.com and you can make a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, uh, become a monthly donor. You can do it for as little as five bucks a month and it makes a huge difference. Uh, it helps keep the podcast going. Uh, we still need donations very much so and, um, any, any bit helps. Um, you can also shop at Amazon by entering through our search portal and then, um, They'll give us a little bit of money and it doesn't make what you're buying any more expensive. Uh, That helps out. And uh, writing something nice on iTunes, giving us a good rating. That helps boost our ranking. Sometimes we get people from that. And spreading the word through social media. That's uh, also a a really big way that you can can help the podcast. So any of those would be great. And if you don't want to do any of them, you know what? Fuck you. Fuck you. Get back on the bus. I know you took the bus here. I know it. Get back on the bus. And shut your fucking mouth. I don't like where this is going. I. There's as a comedian, like you get a sense in your body when, like, the adrenaline of a joke that's going to pay off is going, and it just dissipated. It was. Oh, I so want to go back and re record over this horribleness. And yes, I know from your emails, I should be nicer to myself. Well, good fucking luck. You aren't either, so you're a hypocrite. (laughs) I always love that on the survey, somebody will write, you know, I I bang my head against the wall and, you know, I do this and I do that and I'm an ugly piece of shit. And then any comments that make the podcast better? Paul, don't be so hard on yourself. (laughs) All right. Uh, let's get to some surveys this is from uh, the shame and secret survey and this is filled out by a 15 year old girl uh, who calls herself mathlete and she um, was she's gay Uh, she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment I would call it more than that Uh, she's never been sexually abused Um, not sure if she's been physically or emotionally abused and she writes I think I may have experienced some childhood emotional neglect. My father is a workaholic lawyer who I can only talk to about politics and his job. My mother is a pharmacist. She's all right. I think I distance myself from them. So if I experienced childhood emotional neglect, it was my fault. No, no, it was not. Um, A child, this is my opinion, not a professional, but my opinion is if you feel distance between yourself and the parent and it doesn't feel safe to go to them, that's because that safety foundation wasn't laid for you as a child by that parent. Continuing. Um, also, my younger sister is a bit of a problem child for my parents. She is 11 and still throws temper tantrums, so I have Always just looked after myself while my mom deals with my sister and brother. I have memories of being upset and storming up to my room, making as much noise as possible so my mom would come up to my room and talk to me. I don't remember her ever doing it, though. Now I have trouble identifying my emotions and I have a constant low-grade depression uh, for years. I also have problems relating to other people's relationships with their parents because I feel like I don't really have one with my parents at all. I may also experience some physical and emotional abuse from my sister. As I said earlier, she is 11, so I don't know if it counts because she is a child and younger than me. I'm 15. She throws temper tra- tantrum temper tantrums almost daily and often starts hitting and kicking me, my brother or my mom, uh, and throwing things at us. Um, Darkest thoughts. Um, My deepest but not necessarily darkest thought is that I have a huge crush on the goalkeeper of my high school soccer team. This would never work because she is three years older than me. No one knows I like girls. I have never talked to her outside of soccer, and I think she finds me annoying. If anyone found out, I would probably be shunned by all my friends and possibly sent off to some crazy Christian straight conversion camp. My darkest thoughts are my planned suicide. A year from when I first started to plan it, um, a year from when I first started to plan it, I will go through with it unless things get a whole lot better soon. I plan to take a whole bottle of sleeping pills, slit my wrist, and hang myself off the side of a bridge over the river just to make sure I actually die the first time. Um, anyway, I'm going to continue and then I'll, I'll comment on this uh, later. Uh, Darkest secrets. Uh, this is not very deep or dark. I fake sick whenever I feel too anxious or depressed to go to something. If I feel like I will have a panic attack in the middle of soccer practice, uh, I can get out of it if I tell my mom I have a migraine. If I have to get a present, give a presentation in front of the class, uh, and the world will literally implode. If I have to do to do it today, I can usually put the thermometer in hot water so it looks like I have a fever. Um, what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to and this is one of the reasons i wanted to read this to my dad i really don't care about the new prime minister or the trial you are working on just come to my soccer game once even if it's at the same time as my brother's football game because i don't give a shit about politics i just want you to care as much about me as you do about my brother or your work to my mom Please leave me alone, because my mom scares the shit out of me, and I don't know why. I just want her out of my life, and then in parentheses, for absolutely no reason. To my brain, just let me be happy and carefree for one fucking year, so I won't have to kill myself to get away. What, if anything, do you wish for? Uh, I wish that I had a relationship with my parents, but most of all, I wish that I could see a therapist. I don't care if nothing else happens, just as long as I get an opportunity to get help. Have you shared these things with others? No, I can't talk to anyone about anything. How do you feel after writing these things down? Really good, but also scared that someone I know will read this, and even though it's anonymous, they will know it is me. I also feel like I didn't do it right. Um, uh, Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Music doesn't make everything go away, but it does make it a lot easier to ignore the screaming from down the hall. That is fantastic. that, not the uh, the rest of it. And by the way, you did do it, right? You poured your heart out into, into this. And I think every listener right now just wants to give you a hug and um, <laughs> adopt you. Um, hang in there. You're 15. You're almost 18. Your parents are not equipped to give you what you need. And they will probably not change but you can and it's going to take time it's not going to happen overnight and these feelings of wanting to be dead will pass um or like a lot of us they come and they go but you know the one constant in the universe is that things change and how you feel about your situation will change and especially if you get help um you might try talking to a counselor at school. You might try asking your parents if you can talk to a a, a therapist. But um, you are so much more emotionally intelligent at fifteen than many adults are, and that that is why I wanted to read your survey uh, because that's that's something to hold on to emotional. Intelligence and, and a desire to know no more emotional intelligence is the thing that saves us. You already have inside you the thing that will save you, which is a desire to get better, a desire to get help. That's huge. That's huge, and I'm glad. I'm glad that you emailed me, and um, maybe a, maybe a support group for. Um, For teens, I don't know. Um, But your parents are not giving you the attention that you deserve. And, um, well, you know that. I don't need to tell you that. But um, just sending you a hug. You sound like a great kid. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by book nerd Jen and about her depression. Uh, She has a PMDD depression, which is a post... uh, Why am I blanking on the name? Um said <laughs> postmortem. Um Oh Jesus Christ. I forget the name of it. For a week every month I am sure my life is meaningless. I see no reason to get off my floor. For the other three weeks I dread the bad one. About alcoholism and drug addiction, she writes Ambient addiction. I need the ambient to sleep, but if I take it at work, I won't remember how horrible my job really is. When can I refill my script? A snapshot from her life. I tell my doc I'm anxious. I'm an anxious mess and can't sleep. He says, he says take an antidepressant and get some good sleep. Uh, you'll be fine. Here's six months of Ambien. I think you'll like it. Man, was he right about that last part? I have holes in my memory from that six months like Swiss cheese. What might have happened to me? I want to strangle your doctor. Ambien is not a long-term solution to depression. You know, Ambien it can be used uh, to either to aid with sleep or, or, you know, for some type of crisis happening, but for, um, for being an anxious mess, uh, you know, as you said you are, Ambien is, is, is not a long-term solution. And... Uh, Go see a psychiatrist. Uh, You said it was your doctor. I'm assuming this is not a psychiatrist. But um, first of all, uh, benzos, which is what Ambien is, are incredibly addicting. And the withdrawal from them uh, can be fatal if you do it too quickly. So this is some serious shit. And um, give me your doctor's address so I can go fucking slap him. All right, this is from the Being Hospitalized Survey. And I thought it was uh, pretty apropos um, given what happened uh, in Orlando uh, to read this one because, uh, you know, I read this a couple of days after, after what happened. And um, I just feel like this, this is related to that in some way. Now, I could be wrong, not to that, the specific thing, but the, to the, the rage and the anger and the, and the now I'm not over-explaining it. Anyway, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself um, Von Wolfie, and uh, she's pansexual. She's in her 30s, and um, why were you hospitalized? Uh, a couple of years ago, I went through one of the most difficult times uh, of my life, Well, first, a little backstory. When I was 17 years old, I was kicked out of my family's home for being gay. As a result, I ended up homeless and trying to finish my senior year of high school. Friends offered to let me stay at their house for a few days at a time. Sometimes I would sneak into a shed or garage or an unlocked car to to sleep, and other times I would find myself in the woods with a sleeping bag. During this time, I ended up escaping into drugs, and one night found myself passed out at uh, a party of some people I barely knew. The next thing I remember is waking up, hands tied to a bed while I was brutally raped by two of the men at the party. The next morning I was bleeding heavily and had to be rushed to the hospital where my mother worked as a nurse. I felt like the incident was my fault and begged the staff not to tell my mother what happened. Flash forward to 2014, I'm 33 years old and I find out my mother has been cheating on my father with a woman. Holy Freud, right? All these years, she made me feel shameful for being queer when she herself had feelings for women as well. While talking to my sister about it, she confessed to me that my mother had known about my rape and told my sister, she's such a slut, she deserves everything she gets. Little did my mother know, it was the first time I had ever had sex with men. This triggered something in me and I started to spiral out of control. First, it started with extreme anxiety and anger. I called her and told her how I felt and what I knew she had said. She had my aunt, her sister, call and tell me what a terrible person I was for making my mother feel so bad. My anger... At my mother then turned on myself and I started cutting my arms and legs I would black out and run through the streets naked crying and screaming and still to this day I have no recollection of it I would dissociate and think people were attacking me and write things all over the walls I heard voices and whispering over my shoulder voices that would say awful things about me and urge me to kill myself I went completely insane um And then she was stalked by a a, a co-worker and her employer blamed it on her for wearing yoga pants. Um, And she writes, and at this point, my entire family had cut me off. Um, And I wanted to die. I ended up attempting suicide by taking a bottle of sleeping pills and cutting my body all over with a knife. I woke up in the hospital not really remembering what had happened and was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder brought on by extreme anxiety and trauma. Uh, the first night in the ER psych ward was awful. I was wailing and crying, and all I wanted was a hug. The nurse on duty told me to shut up, or they would have to strap me down. I told her I just needed kindness and a hug, and that I felt all alone. I reached out to hug her, and she claimed that I had tried to attack her, so they took away my visitation privileges. At the time, I didn't know that my father had driven all the way out from Boston to see me, and was told I didn't want to see him. When in reality, I wasn't allowed visitors because of some asshole insensitive nurse. The following morning they strapped me into a bed, rolled me into an ambulance, and brought me to a mental hospital where I was to stay for a week. The staff at the hospital were a lot more compassionate and understanding than the nurse at the ER and listened to what I had to say and validated my feelings. I hadn't felt validated ever in my life. It was the first time anyone ever said to me, what happened to you was fucked up and wasn't your fault. After the first couple of days, while on a lot of medication, I started to come down from my anxiety and wanted to get out and move on with my life and seek out some patient treatment. I didn't feel as crazy as the other folks in there and felt guilty for taking up a bed. The rest of my stay there ended up feeling like I was in prison and trying to stay on my best behavior, saying the right things and proving to the doctors that I was fit to go back out into the world. They eventually let me out after seven days with a promise to follow up with a therapist. I wouldn't say the stay helped me figure out how to overcome my trauma, but it gave me a starting point and a respite from my life for a brief moment. It it introduced me to some anti-anxiety medication, which helped me get through that difficult time. I'm happy to say two years later, I'm doing a lot better. I'm not 100%, but I'm certainly not in that dark place anymore. Thank you for sharing that. Now you know who knows what drove that guy in in Orlando to to do what what he did. Was he closeted, gay? Was you know his father you know his views on gays? Did that make that guy you know want to kill others or kill himself? I don't know, but I just know we need to change and we need to start accepting people for who they are. I can understand why people uh, shut up. I'm so afraid that somebody's going to criticize an opinion that I have that. Uh, uh, Just shut up. Just shut up. Mean part of my brain. This is a struggle in a sentence survey. Um, And thank you, by the way, for that. For that survey. And I'm so glad you're doing better. This is filled out by Matt. And he writes about his ADD. And the time it takes me to read one page in a novel I've planned my meals for the next day, taken a virtual trip to Mexico, including being abducted by drug traffickers and fighting my way out of their compound and had great imaginary sex with the former flame. I've also gone to see if there's anything in the refrigerator. There wasn't. So I found some brownie mix, got as far as adding the eggs before deciding it would take too long and left it on the counter. Forgot the book. My brain's tired. I need a nap. Poetic. Poetic. This is an email I got from uh, Amanda, and she writes uh, While listening to your podcast recently, uh, you and your guest, Hillary, talked about dealing with trichotillomania. You said you're interested in the different ways in which people cope and how those coping mechanisms make them feel. I wanted to share my experience with you. I don't think I've ever explained this to anyone in the detail I'm about to explain to you, not even my therapist. One of my coping mechanisms over the year has been vomiting. I have had difficulty referring it to, to it as bulimia because it's not been consistent over the years and I don't do it to be thin. This basically uh, pops up during times of stress. I also don't necessarily binge. I might just eat to the point of discomfort. Is my denial showing yet? Anyway, all I can say is the act of vomiting as a reaction to stress has only ever given me incredible feelings of relief. I know eating disorders, again, I have trouble calling my behavior an eating disorder, are often talked about with references to control. But for me, it has always been about relief. Prior to vomiting, I feel full, physically full. Not necessarily because I ate too much, but I feel full of negative feelings. Maybe I'm depressed, rejected, angry. And by vomiting, I feel as though I'm physically expelling those feelings from my body. To take it a step further and maybe this is TMI but for me it is almost as though the feelings come out in layers. Obviously as I'm vomiting I can see what I'm throwing up so I'm thinking okay I just ate that and I ate that earlier and I ate that even earlier. So once I get to a certain point I think okay what I just threw up I ate at a time when I was feeling okay so I can stop now and once I'm done I feel like a thousand pound weight has been lifted off of my shoulders. I don't know that I would describe it as a high, but rather immense relief, like I can breathe again. I don't do this often, and ideally, if I'm taking my depression medication and feeling good, I don't do it at all, but sometimes I fall back on bad habits. Hopefully, this sheds a little light on why some of us do the maladaptive, seemingly crazy things we do. Thank you so much for that. That was uh, very illuminating. Um, Spirit animal. Uh, she's a teenager, and she dr- describes her depression. My isolation from others is both comforting and agonizing. When I see how much I don't matter to others, I wish I could live instead of merely exist. Oh man, do we, do we get that? Boy, do we get that? My isolation from others is both comforting and agonizing sending you some love ah this is an awful some moment i love this name uh that one guy you vaguely remember from high school um he's 16 and he writes one day while i was feeling particularly suicidal i gave one of my close friends a call like i always promised i would when she answered she sounded really tired and told me i woke her up from her afternoon nap after which I proceeded to vigorously apologize for wanting to kill myself because I thought that 30 minutes of my friend's sleep was worth more than my life. Well, I'm glad that you are around to type this and for us to read it and to relate. Sending you some love, buddy. Uh, This is filled out by Flora Adrenaline and she writes about hour binge eating. I'm making plans for eating healthier tomorrow as I drive to the fast food drive through to binge on cheap, greasy burgers and fries. I'll begin with the next meal. I'll start tomorrow. This is the last time. This is never the last time. You just described exactly what I went through before I quit drinking. My brain would come up with a reason every night why tonight was going to be the last night I was going to drink and then tomorrow I was going to quit. And it you believe it. You believe it. Uh, this is an awful moment filled out by Allie, uh, who is 17. And she writes, uh, I ordered 40 batteries to my house uh, for my vibrator. There aren't many of that kind of batteries, so I bought them in bulk. Unfortunately, slightly high on painkillers, uh, I... F- I forgot uh, that my mom has absolutely no boundaries when it comes to my stuff. She tends to open my packages without asking and basically has no sense of privacy. Today, I was up in my room playing The Sims when I hear, Who the hell ordered all these batteries? Allison? I run downstairs. My mom starts interrogating me about what the batteries are for and why I bought 40 of them. One thing about my mom is that she hates lying in any form, even if it's to preserve privacy. I won't tell her. So she starts guessing, is it for a watch? A Fitbit? A vibrator? I'm a terrible liar, and I can already feel my face going red, but I have an idea. I look her straight in the face and say, yes. My mom goes bright red and starts muttering about how it's my business what I order online. I tell her that if she doesn't want to have these awkward conversations, she shouldn't open my shit without asking. Fantastic. Fantastic um and my my mom found my porn stash once when i was uh i think i was like 15 oh so fucking embarrassing um this is shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself something clever she's in her 20s uh she's straight but i have had sex with a few women raised in a uh Slightly dysfunctional environment, ever been the victim of sexual abuse, Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I always had a really hard time sleeping at nights, restless, anxious, and angry. I could sleep if I slept in my mom's bed with her and did this most nights into my early teens. My dad worked nights, so it was usually just us on nights when my dad was off work. I would usually uh I would usually still cause enough cause usually still cause enough of a fuss about sleeping that I would be in their bed. Instead of taking it somewhere else, they used to have sex in the bed next to me. I know they thought I was sleeping because I heard them talk about not wanting to wake me up while they were in the middle of fucking. Whenever I would wake up during this, I didn't know what to do, so I would pretend to be asleep. Neither of my parents have ever touched me, but it don't feel like doing this was right, and I have told them that. Well, good for you for saying that, because that is not you should assume that your child is going to wake up. Um, not sure if she's been emotionally abused. My parents being so sexual around me made me feel like it counts as abuse, but I don't like that it happened. Um, oh, my parents being so sexual around me made me uh, made me. My parents being so sexual around me made me doesn't feel like it counts as sexual abuse. Something is not right in that sentence, but I don't like that it happened. Emotionally, my parents had a baby that died three days after birth a year before me. My mom has always said that she felt like our family wasn't whole again until my little brother who was born seven years after me. My mom was angry and sad all the time when I was little. She would scream at us for no reason and like to slam cupboards and doors so everyone would know she was upset. It's not abuse, but it felt like everything was about my mom, was about how my mom was doing. It still is. That's, that's a form of abuse, you know, m- abuse, neglect, whatever, whatever you want to talk. It's It's a kid's needs not being met. And that's ultimately what matters because that's the wound. You know, it doesn't really matter the delivery system for <laughs> for what does the, the injury. Um And again, this is not about blaming that parent. This is about giving weight to, to what happened to us so that we can um not feel guilty and uh, sharing it with somebody else and not feel like we're being a baby and making too big of a deal of it. Because we can't heal if we're constantly saying, uh, you know, this isn't worth talking about. It is worth talking about. If you're feeling bad about it, it doesn't matter how innocuous it seems. Talk about it. And talk about it with people that can speak that, you know, that understand. Um, darkest thoughts. I like to think about the meanest things I could say to people, like pick them apart for who they are and make them regret ever making me feel bad. This doesn't happen as much anymore, but I used to fantasize about getting into fights all the time. I just wanted to hit someone as hard as I could. Uh, Darkest Secrets. Early teens through high school, my bedroom shared a wall with my parents. They had obnoxiously loud sex all the time when they knew the kids were in the house, and I used to listen at the vent between our rooms and masturbate. I caught my older brother doing the same a couple of times. I didn't understand sexual boundaries like I should have and used to masturbate on the couch while watching movies with my family with just a blanket over me. I don't know why I thought this was okay, but no one ever told me not to, and I'm sure they knew. I think you just answered your own question. Uh, I don't know why I didn't know this was okay, but no one ever told me not to, and I'm sure they knew. Yeah, I, you were raised in a in a... Uh, a house where there was an inappropriate uh, sexual whatever in the air. Uh, I was maybe 10 or 11 when it started. Small thing. My mom is a poet, and I often went to her poetry readings, uh, read her work, etc. She had a couple of poems that were not explicit but overtly sexual about my father. She knowingly gave them to me to read and or read them in front of me. Yeah, no boundaries. Um. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I find pregnant women and childbirth erotic and sometimes watch childbirth videos while I masturbate. I understand that a fantasy that does not hurt anyone is okay, but it still makes me feel kind of weird. Um, and you're not the first person I've, uh, I've heard um, talk about that. So um, don't feel like like you're alone in that. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I am happy for the life I have, but I really want to tell my parents that I don't think they should have had kids. They didn't have this stability, uh, mentality, emotionally or financially. Choosing to homeschool me gave me some small advantages and a lot of real disadvantages. They screwed me out of a normal social life and good education. I can't say this because I know they tried and did what they thought was best. What, if anything you wish for. I wish I had been better to my younger brother when we were little. I had awful anger issues and took it all out on him. He was so small and innocent and I wish I could take it all back. Have you shared these things with others? I've expressed to my parents some of the stuff about my childhood and my mom made it about her and my dad said he was sorry. I don't feel like it helped anything. I want to tell my brother I'm sorry but I'm scared it won't be enough and he won't want me in his life anymore. I can't imagine that happening. I can't imagine I've never seen an apology, someone initiating an apology um, make something worse. I, I haven't. So I think you should do it. Because um, I think it'd be good for both of you. And they open up a, a channel of, of discussion. Um, how do you feel after writing these things down? I've wanted to do this for a very long time and I hope that this is a good step for me. Um, is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I need to believe that fucked up stuff we do as kids doesn't define our our morality as adults. Don't be too hard on your little kid self. You didn't know better yet. Absolutely. Yep. Uh... This is a struggle in a sentence survey and he calls himself i'm too tired to think of a good name and he uh, deals with anxiety and uh, he drinks too much and in his words and um actually not in his words about his anxiety he says no matter how much i exercise or how much bourbon i drink i never feel at peace and then snapshot from his life New life experience, buying a half gallon of whiskey at 9 a.m. on a Monday morning and feeling disappointed that the guy behind the counter didn't give me a weird look or ask if I was okay. You know why? Probably because he sees it all the time. But I hope you get some help because um, if you are an alcoholic, that uh, that is not something to be handled uh, on our own. We need help has saved my life this is an awful some moment filled out by pos which i believe stands for piece of shit i'm not sure um awful some moment i am jealous of people with eating disorders i watch my friends lose weight through unhealthy ways and wish i could trade my suicidal ideation for anorexia i know it's illogical but i think it anyway should i call this eating disorder ideation I don't know why they have to be mutually mutually exclusive. I think a modern woman can have it all. I think that she can uh, have suicidal ideation and an eating disorder. Um, if you put if you put your mind to it, you could probably even throw in um, some anxiety. This is filled out by Allie, and uh, this is an awfulsome moment, and she writes. And this, there's, this one's not funny, but it's just, uh, I don't know, some, something about it uh, I found moving. She writes, Last night I contacted the Rape and Incest a National Network uh, hotline to talk about my, or oh, the online hotline, to talk about my story of uh, child sexual abuse. The hotline was busy and there was a waiting period. I was dissociating really badly at the time, so everything was surreal. I just thought, well, this is going to be a long night, I walked downstairs, poured myself a massive glass of milk, and poured all the chocolate syrup I had I had left into the glass. So I sat naked in the dark, gulping down chocolate milk at 1 in the morning. I was so out of it, all I could think of was how cold and sweet the chocolate milk was. Not that I was sharing my story for the first time. It was the most surreal experience of my life. I just want to high-five you for walking through that fear and sharing your story. That is the biggest of high fives. Uh, <laughs> this guy, this is a shame and secret survey. This guy calls him creepy DJ voiced. It, DJ voice is the best. And don't let anyone tell you different, Paul. Uh, too late. Others have told me different. He is... Straight in his thirties, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment and um I just wanted to read this this one um ever been the victim of sexual abuse and stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts, and um he doesn't elaborate, but it's really about his uh his darkest thoughts um that I wanted to read he writes um My wife's postpartum depression makes me think about leaving at times, or at least about being somewhere else. It sometimes feels like living with a a shadow of the woman I married, a strange doppelganger that walks in her place and exists solely to suck every last ray of joy and energy and hope from the house. I'm already being the only one emotionally present for the kids. In fact, I'm trying to be doubly so since they aren't getting much from her. And it sometimes feels like it would be easier to just be somewhere else. I feel both deeply sad and secretly vindicated when my daughter wants me instead of my wife to do every last thing for her i love my wife and i'm committed to my marriage she's doing everything therapy meds eating well trying to exercise and i know she wants to be in a different state but every day she brings up the same anxieties we've talked about every day for the last few months from whether we have enough food in the fridge to if she'll ever feel better and of course why i'm willing to stay with her while she's in this state and she just sits and stares and can't manage to talk to our daughter or to acknowledge me It's times like this I want to leave. I want to be somewhere else. Having a drink with a friend or going on a walk with my kids and dogs. More than anything, I want my wife back, and I'm terrified she's gone forever. That the rest of my life will be spent raising kids and caring for a woman who once was the best thing in my life, but is now a drain on me. I feel so ashamed when I see how I've written uh, that, but I guess what I'm saying is that it feels like I've lost the most important relationship in my life. Man. I mean, you both sound like you're doing the best that you can. You know, the only thing I can, I can think is, is to find something to recharge your batteries. You know, maybe a support group. I know NAMI, uh, the National uh, Alliance of Mental Illness, N-A-M-I.org, I know they have uh, support group meetings for loved ones of uh, people who uh, suffer from, from mental illness. That might be a good place to, to find some support because you gotta recharge your batteries and um, sending love to both you guys. Man, that is hard. That is hard. But thank God your wife, you know, is getting into the solution and um, and trying. Um, you know, and, and something else to consider is, you know, maybe a hospital stay? I don't know. Talk to your... Hopefully she has a psychiatrist that she's uh, she's working with. You said she's on meds, but um, I don't know. I shouldn't. Now I feel like I'm butting in. Um, like I'm, I think I'm butting in on surveys that people filled out for me to potentially read. <laughs> uh, I'd be like a cop pulling somebody over and going, I'm sorry, would you mind if I looked at your license and registration? Thank you. I'm I'm so sorry I have to do this. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a trans female, but still living as a man, uh, not out. Uh, calls herself, wish I was able to be me. And she's straight in her 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um... Ever been the victim of sexual abuse some stuff happened but i don't know if it counts when i was six a neighbor boy a couple years older forced me to get naked and lay in bed with him don't really remember anything after that other than getting into trouble for going in his house without permission i didn't say anything about it because i didn't want to be in more trouble i never could see him again uh without freaking out but i couldn't say why we moved shortly after that and i never had to my mom heard 15 years after that he had been arrested for child abuse. I think I may have been the first, so I wish I had said something about it then. Maybe it could have saved someone else. Don't, don't, don't play that over in your mind. You all that—that that is just putting gasoline on the fire. And it was not your place to do that. It was, it—it it was his. The responsibility on him was to get help instead of doing that to you. Um. Although I think he was. Uh, A child when he did it to you as well so um i'm sure it was done to him anyway he's been emotionally abused told my parents about feeling like i was a girl they said i was wrong and did not talk about it after that i would get into trouble for doing or playing anything girly i learned how to wear this boy costume and started daydreaming to escape also had to watch my parents scream and yell at one another every weekend until i moved out it got bad in my younger brother and i never knew when it would start or why They never got physical, but yelled loud enough that we could hear them down the block. My mom would tell us how awful my dad was whenever he was at work and treated me like her partner. She never left him for, quote, us, even though we begged her to go. Any positive experiences? They are my parents, so I do have good memories, but I try to stay away from them as much as possible. I do still love them, but I can't be around them anymore. Darkest Thoughts. I wish I would get cancer or into an accident and lose my penis and balls. I think that would be easier than telling my wife what I truly am. I dread that day. Darkest Secrets I have used my wife's makeup when she was gone. She realized that someone used it and blamed my daughter. I was ashamed to admit that it was me and let her punish my daughter. It wasn't bad, but I still feel horrible that I let her blame my 13-year-old daughter for something I did. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being with a woman while I was a woman. Girl-on-girl porn is the only way I can get off. When I do have sex, I have to imagine myself as a woman or it won't work. I feel like a liar and bad husband. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish I could tell my wife why I've been so miserable the last couple of years. It's not her or the kids. I just hate my body and the way I have to pretend I'm something I'm not. What, if anything, do you wish for that my wife and kids would love and be with me even if I were to transition? Have you shared these things with others? Not yet. This is really the first time I've told anyone. I'm scared I will lose everything and everyone I love. How do you feel after writing these things down? Sad. It's hard writing down all the ways I am lying to my family. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Get help as soon as you can. The dysphoria doesn't go away ever. It's better to do something about this before getting a family and risk losing them over it. That is one of the most moving things I have read in the five years of, of doing this podcast. I don't I don't even know you know I don't even know what to say cuz um I understand how scared you must be but you got to be you you got to be you and I think anybody that loves you truly loves you would accept you for who you are and if they can't, to me that's not love. That's my two cents. But oh you're you're that sadness that you have. Of course you are. I mean, of course you are. Oh, buddy. But reach out. Don't don't hold all of this in by yourself, you know. I I know there are support groups. Um for people who are uh, afraid to come out of the closet about being trans or whatever it is that they're afraid to express. But um, my heart goes out to you, my heart goes out to you. And you know what? Um, I think you should go in the forum and post on the forum and uh, start opening up to, to people there because you can do it anonymously. And um, I think that would be a great f- tiny little first step to um, be comfortable talking about it. I can't imagine how how hard, how hard that conflict has to be. This is a happy moment filled out by Kirsten, and she writes, It was a normal Saturday, and I had gone downtown to do some shopping. I don't remember my particular mood that day, but usually when I shop, I'm completely inside my own head and don't notice the people around me. At some point, the shopping street intersects with the road, and there's a crosswalk. While waiting for a green light, I notice a girl in the crowd on the other side. She's one of those girls with red lipstick and great fashion sense, and she's looking right at me. We get eye contact and she smiles a little. I try not to blush. Is she flirting with me? Me? The light turns green and everybody starts walking. We walk past each other and I've never seen her since. I'm not even sure I'd recognize her, but for those 10 seconds while I waited for a green light, I felt seen. For a brief moment, I was totally present. I felt connected to the world and to another person. It's something so little as eye contact and a smile, but I will never forget it. That's so beautiful and it's so it's such a great reminder that it's just really about being present and just dealing with what's right in front of us. And and we get all these great moments when we remember to do that. But God this myth that the future is gonna be when things will will uh you know. We gotta we gotta try to find it here. We gotta try to find it here. I struggle with that, man. I just Oh, if I can just get back back to my iPad and play Scrabble, you know, this discomfort I'm feeling will go away. Yeah, and sometimes just, you know, I'll be at the coffee house where I go and work and I'll, and sometimes I'll just put my laptop da- down and I'll just notice. I'll just look at, you know, the, the plant or, you know, the wood trim around the edge of a you know the menu board, or somebody's shoes, and and just uh, forget that that all we ever have is this this moment, this present moment, right now. This is from the um, being hospitalized survey, and the, actually these next two are and. I just wanted to read them because I read them back to back and I felt like this encapsulates, you know, we've had almost 500 people fill out the being hospitalized survey. And I feel like these two back to back completely sum up the breadth of experiences I've read in these surveys. Uh, Emma was hospitalized for suicide attempts, anorexia, bulimia, and self-harm. And describing her experience, it's been so many times, but they all made it worse, especially a certain hospital where I'd been four times. And then the next one was filled out by uh, Blue Jay, who overdosed on every single prescription I had, which was a lot because all my meds had just been filled for a 90-day supply, and describe your experience. I've been hospitalized three times, but the last one was exceptional from the staff to the materials provided during group uh, group sessions or individual therapy. This is a shame and secret survey, and this is filled out by, um, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to read this other thing. This is an awful moment uh, filled out by Matt. And uh, he writes, years ago, while in the military, I was sent to a five week school. As I left, my wife told me to not come home after. At school, I ended up chatting with a female classmate who was having similar issues with her marriage. We ended up spending much time together, but nothing sexual happened. A year or so later, I've been transferred to a new unit. While bullshitting with some guys, the woman's name came up. My ADHD brain decided I needed to tell how she wore leopard print panties. We used to run together, and one day I caught a tiny peek. One of the guys looked at me and said, That's my wife. I was so mortified, I couldn't explain myself. About a month later, they were divorced. That's pretty fucking awfulsome. That is pretty fucking awfulsome. Uh, IBC writes about her anxiety my body sends a rush of adrenaline because it knows I'm in trouble but it won't tell my brain what's happening that is so good Uh, snapshot from her life Uh, during a rather intense panic episode I bit so deeply into my cheek the tissue was exposed and I was unable to speak or eat for a week I had no idea I was doing it at the time because I was so distracted by the panic in my body uh, and she'd like to hear an episode with a significant other of an opiate addict and uh you should listen to the episode with Ashley Birch uh sadly her partner um OD'd uh, but i th- i i um i think nonetheless it would uh, it would still be uh pertinent to anybody who has a partner with an opiate addiction and and it's just a great episode um the chicken little Uh, writes about her depression. Diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. I feel like I am my own suicide bomber. A snapshot from her life. In 2012, my assassins had infiltrated my mind and took it over, convincing me to kill myself by overdosing on drugs. I called the crisis line uh, pleading for help i was rushed to a small community hospital where everything i saw was expanding and contracting and i lost consciousness from there i was airlifted to the nearest city hospital where it took the emergency doctors five minutes to revive me from near death i woke up five days later in the cardiac unit and realized that i was still alive i cried out i wish i was dead over and over again as the thought of dealing with my illness anymore was too overwhelming to handle i can't imagine well hopefully um i'm hoping that you're you're feeling better and and you found some meds that um helped help stabilize you i have a friend who has schizoaffective disorder and i'm hoping to get him on the podcast and um he's gone through quite um quite the struggle with uh finding the right meds but i tell you this much when he's off them um he tells me the paranoia is just unbelievable and he knows that it's his brain telling him you know he knows that it's not real but it's so real that his body his body reacts um thank you for calling please hold it's a great name writes about uh, uh their agender age and they write about their codependency i accidentally cut off some guy on my way to the animal shelter to volunteer and he honked at me, flipped me off twice, and yelled, Fuck you, bitch. I better go home and cry instead, because somebody I will never meet in person thinks I'm a bitch. Um, Snapshot from your life. Feeling miserable and hopeless at work one night and trying to stave off the suicidal feelings with mindless TV documentaries about serial killers. It actually worked, because my ideation was temporarily derailed by the thought that Bernice Warden's entire head in a burlap sack would be a fucking terrible band name. <laughs> I wonder if that was uh Edmund Kemper. If that was the serial killer you were watching on that for some reason that rings a bell. I find uh, documentaries about serial killers to be incredibly um soothing. And I hate to admit that, but something about it, something about their darkness calms me down. Um Any comments to make the podcast better? I heard you send hugs by Jet and Carrier Pigeon. Can you send naps as well? We do send naps, but they have to be refrigerated. And um, a lot of times, uh, then they need to be thawed. And the people that get them are already tired. So, um, waiting around for it to thaw. We're going to have to rethink uh, how we send out naps. I really, I should have thought through more thoroughly. Um. You know what? We could send them by a uh, Roman-era chariot. That might work. I'm going to have to get back to you on that. Uh, this is a portion of a survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Big Tallulah. And she writes, My spouse is a trans man. I've kept a lot of nude pics of him from before the transition when we were young perky-titted lesbians having a great time. I said I destroyed them because it causes him so much distress to see his body the way it was before. This is my darkest secret because it feels like such a betrayal. I keep those images of her and think about them constantly. It feels like I'm cheating on my husband with the ghost of my wife. She was perfect and beautiful. I can't imagine how uh, how new all of these Challenges, emotional challenges must be. Um, and then I thought this was such a beautiful moment. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? She had a, a biological dad who was a total dick uh, to her and, uh, and then a stepfather um, who is a good guy. And what, if anything, would you like to say to someone? She writes, I would love to be able to tell my dad, my stepdad, technically, that he's my hero. Uh, here was this young guy with a kid of his own, and he takes on the train wreck that was my mother and her kids. And we were angry and fucked up kids. He was patient. He tried his best to make us feel loved and accepted, which was pretty fucking good considering his upbringing. And he worked his ass off to provide us with everything we needed. Big displays of emotion made him very nervous, and the idea of. En- Making anyone I love uncomfortable makes me extremely anxious. The closest I came to telling him how much he means to me was when we recently saw my bio dad at Target. An upgrade dad, stepdad, suggested going to say hi to my, quote, father. So I turned to my dad, stepdad, looked him in the eye and said hi. He got misty-eyed and then I needed to take an anti-anxiety pill. That is so beautiful. I could have ended the podcast on that one. This is a shame and secret survey, and this one's uh, this one's pretty heavy um but I really wanted to uh it's also got some really beautiful um just stop fucking qualifying it narrated this is filled out by blab town and uh let's see. She is pansexual in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, Oh, I'm sorry. Um, Actually, uh, what gender are you? Other. And then uh, they just put complicated. I'm sorry. Raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, They're in their 20s. Uh, They were the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. When I was 19, I was drunk a lot of the time. It so happens that I was raped by a series of men and then in parentheses they put deep breath who would be identified as black. I'm so fucking mindful of anti-blackness that I haven't admitted this to anyone. Rape takes so many shapes. I am incredibly ambivalent towards this tangled power relation given I am mixed uh, Latina, white, and middle class. But my Oh I, I'm sorry Latin X I didn't know I thought that was a typo and then I realized um, without a specific gender of course it would be Latin X I'm um, mixed Latinx, white and middle class, but my rapist made a piece of me and now I am hurting incredibly and simultaneously denying myself this pain. I only came out as a survivor last year and I'm twenty five There are layers of feel fear I feel so frightened of having sex. And most uh, intimacy i'm frightened of perpetuating anti blackness I'm scared of being too fucked up to decolonize my body. You know, I thought about this one a lot and i and I thought it's not racism if if what happened to you if there are triggers to it, you know people can be triggered by um, a song um, uh, something visual. Um, a noise. Um, and that is a part of your story. You're clearly not somebody that that has become anti-black because this happened to you. It's just a part of what happened to you. And, and I just think that's a really important distinction um, if that's a trigger for you. Uh, so moving on. Uh, She's never been physically abused. I'm sorry. They've never been physically abused uh, and not sure if they've been emotionally abused. I was smacked some as a child, which I don't see as abusive. It was mostly moving countries a lot, which fucked with me and my parents not talking about. However, when I was of a certain age, I can't remember. I had quite a bad bout of constipation, which still, which required a parent Uh, to insert a suppository in me and they would do it without my consent. Totally humiliating. Still is when I think about it. My shitting was problematic for my family. How deeply shameful. My body has brought me deep shame for as long as I can remember. Darkest thoughts. I am ashamed constantly by my physicality, that my muscles are tight, that I'm making noise or wearing clothes. I think about having sex with my friends, though I'm definitely not into having sex at the moment. I can't tell them this because social rules don't permit i lovingly fantasize about going down on a particular friend so she comes in my mouth and have been cultivating this fantasy since i met her my mind works in pictures i can see this in my brain clear as day the image crops up when i spend time with her darkest secrets i had an orgasm one time i was being raped i remember it perfectly because it was the first orgasm i had with someone else present the thought is chilling This thing about me is what makes me broken when it comes to loving someone. I know it. You you are not broken. You are wounded, but you are not broken. And as I've said many times on this podcast, that is a super common physical response uh, to things happening. And I had an erection when my mom gave me a bath that felt really sketchy. I was too old. It shouldn't have happened. I was like 12. And that's how my body responded. And I blamed myself for years. I felt like I was a fucking monster. And I let it go about two, three years ago. And um, it's, it's, um, it is a, it, I'm not saying that it happened isn't fucking terrible, um, that that's the first orgasm you experience with somebody, but I just want to let you know that that is a really common thing. And a lot of people hold on to that shame when they don't need to. So um sending you lots, lots of love. Um, sexual fantasies, most powerful to you. Either my ex falling back in love with me and teasing a long, slow blended orgasm out of my dripping cunt as she sits on my face or being indiscriminately fucked by a large reptile with teeth and wings and claws like Satan's and and Rosemary's baby. A cool, scaly, nine-inch cock making my cunt ache as much as it gets me soaked. The reptile knows my clit well. I feel bizarre. Oh, how does Sherry that make you feel? I feel bizarre and sleazy and wet. Well, then you're doing it right. What if anything do you wish for? I want a boyfriend to save me from this lonely worthlessness. I want to escape to a simple fictional realm where we don't have to eat. My skin and hair are perfect 24-7, and there is a soft young man, 21-plus years, who listens and kisses me gently all over. I wish for this boy and I to develop such trust that we pierce each other. Best of all, since it's fictional, I don't actually exist. My ideal, to be honest. Have you shared these things with others? Their shame and wanted uh, to be fuck, to, and wanted to fuck my ex or Satan or the savior knight uh, archetype. I'm supposed to reject patriarchal relations and be my own best friend or something. No fuck should, you know, there is no should when it comes to what turns us on. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel like I would share this with a partner if I found another morbid asshole like me. I feel aroused and tired. Uh, is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Ouch, ouch, ouch. I'd like to share a hug and a horror movie with you. I'd like to share non-sexualized body heat and safe squeezes. There are more of us who are the sensitive. It can't be wrong. We're capable of loving each other. And then she put a, a heart, a heart thing. That really moved me. Thank you for sharing that. And I hope... um I hope you're getting help for that trauma because that is a lot. That's a lot of. Uh, that's a lot of feelings on your plate, and um, I hear great things about the uh, the Rape and Incest National Network, RAINN. dot So um, if you haven't, you might you might think about contacting them. And then uh, we have a happy moment, two happy moments to end on. Uh, The first one is from Alicia, and she writes, I have had anxiety issues my entire life, and they started when I was pretty young. Most of my anxiety centered around a phobia of vomiting. So when I was younger, feeling just a little bit sick would really get me going. When I was about nine years old, I was returning to school after having the stomach flu, already pretty shaken up from dealing with being anxious as well as sick. I think I was out of school for almost a week because of the whole ordeal. I remember walking up the stairs into the tiny portable where the classroom was, and as soon as I walked through the door, a friend of mine jumped up in the middle of class and hugged me. Soon, all of my friends and classmates were in on it, and I was, out, I was at the center of a very large group hug. God, this sounds fake, even as I'm writing it but it is still one of my favorite childhood memories for a little kid trying to figure out why I felt so wrong. It meant the world to me. That's so fantastic. Thank you for that. And then, you know, I love the... the the. Um... Why do I have to qualify every... Because I'm so afraid you're judging me. <laughs> Does it ever end? Will I ever get to a place where I'm like, okay, I'm enough. They're not going to pick this apart. I'm so terrified of criticism. Um, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself painted black. And she writes, um, in parentheses, kind of long, I've worked a retail job with a higher end clientele for about six years. And as a naturally introverted person, it is a challenge. While I am allowed to somewhat be myself in my sales and interactions, dealing with rich entitled shitheads for 40 plus hours a week uh, is draining given the expected level of customer service and emotional labor. Not everyone was terrible. Usually people were demanding in a hurry, condescending, or plain rude. At best, they were blindly self-involved. I got used to not being thanked and that people just take and take and take. So I learned to keep up my emotional walls at work and to protect my energy and myself. A few months ago, I was zipping around the store on a busy day when a woman stopped me. I assumed she wanted something of me, so I put on a smile and prepared. She asked who did my arm tattoo, which was peeking out from under my short sleeve, and wanted to see the rest. Startled, I showed her, and she then shared a story of her friend who was struggling with breast cancer but wanted to get a tattoo if she made it to remission. Uh, maybe the woman just seemed plain nice, but I almost immediately felt at ease talking to her. I gave her my artist, a woman who, uh, a woman, which is what her friend wanted, and said, uh, I'd seen a gorgeous photo of a woman with a tattoo cascade of cherry blossoms over where her breast was, and heard of women getting artwork instead of reconstructive surgery. She kind of teared up and told me she loved the idea that she was scared for her friend, how'd she be with her throughout the treatment, and that researching tattoos was to keep her friend motivated. I got teared up too and asked if I could hug her. So we hugged in the middle of a busy aisle. I told her what a great friend she was and that I'm sending her and her friend positive energy. When we parted, she said she was really touched, wanted to know my name and told me how much she appreciated me and we were meant to meet. It felt so good. I'm getting teary writing this months later. I've since moved to a different position and don't really interact with customers directly, but I still think of this woman and her friend. I never got their names, but I hope her friend is in remission and on her way to owning a beautiful healing piece of art that celebrates her struggle and her health. What a beautiful friendship they must have. You always talk about connecting and being vulnerable. It was, it has made me try to remember, but often I can't think of anything. Right now, I'm in therapy for depression and anxiety, and I'm really trying to be present and aware, especially of the happy moments. My former best friend told me I wasn't trying hard enough not to be depressed, and even though I am better off without a judgmental, toxic, quote, friend, I miss what my closest friendship, and I miss what was my closest friendship and fear I'll never connect again with someone, but in a healthy way. When I felt so comfortable with a woman I'd just met, and dropped all my protections it felt so real and so fucking human for once uh i wish i were able to see her again thank her and hopefully hear good news about her friend and i'm grateful to you for prompting me to remember what could have been just another day at work now the reason i wanted to read that is because at the end i get a shout out i get the credit and if it's not about me it's not a happy moment It's such a beautiful, uh, the the vignettes of your lives that you guys share. I know I say this all the time, but it's just, it it, it just, just blows me away. It hurts my heart and it fills my heart. It's like a, uh, trying to think of something that would squeeze the air out of something and then pump it back into it. Uh, I think I'm tired. Um, Well, if you're out there and you're, and you're struggling, um, I hope this lasts however many minutes, how long have we been going? 137 minutes. I hope you heard something that clicked. If you're afraid to ask for help, I hope you heard something that nudged you a little closer to either asking for help or speaking your truth. Uh, there's a woman who, who said, I I, I can't remember who it was. It was many years ago, but, uh, um, She said, speak your truth even if your voice shakes. And um, yeah, there's a lot of surveys tonight where um, people are on that verge of of speaking their truth and want to speak their truth. And um, it's the scariest thing in the world, but its um, I would be dead if I hadn't spoken my truth. And um, I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad I'm here because I get to experience... Looking somebody else in the eye and saying, I've been there and, and you, can, you can get through this. I know you can. And uh, sometimes that almost makes it like a gift. Sounds a little uh, like I might be spinning that, but it's kind of a beautiful gift and terrible wrapping paper, <laughs> trauma and, uh, and mental illness and addiction. But um, just remember that you're not alone. You never were, and you never have to be. And uh, thanks for listening. Oh, and Herbert's butthole says hello.
0: Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. way.